0: to find simple
1: ways to boost your true wealth. Welcome, this is Crystal Arnold, your hostess of Money Wise Women and founder of Money Morphosis. There is incredible potential in reimagining value, investment, and, and what wealth is. And there is uh, increasing urgency with with climate change happening to uh, face face the realities of how our economy of growth and is is designed to extract wealth and to uh, to really reward and pressure uh, the continued uh, increase in in. in the activities that that may be contributing to our uh, climate situation, and so I feel like it's it's especially um, important to be having conversations that really openly discuss uh, both money and our personal relationship to it, but go beyond that and really look at the the systems and how we can transform those in a way that benefits people and planet and encourages people to align their values and their deeply held beliefs uh, with their financial decisions. And our guest today, Georgia Kelly, has um, truly been a, a pioneer for many decades now. Um, she is the founder of Praxis Peace Fund and uh, is the executive director there, oh, excuse me, Praxis Peace Institute. So, Georgia creates educational programs for Praxis as well as leading workshops in conflict resolution and seminars abroad. I first met Georgia at uh, the Economics of Peace Conference in 2009 and was so inspired by uh, the quality of people brought together at that event and the conversations that were being had. Uh, she's also organized three seven day peace building conferences in Croatia in 2000, 2002, and 2007, and four conferences in California that focused on the Economic aspects of systemic change. In 2008, Georgia began leading seminars and tours at the Mondragon Cooperatives in Spain, and the 10th uh, Praxis Seminar will be held there at Mondragon this June 16th through 22nd. In 2013, Georgia edited and co-authored Uncivil Liberties, Deconstructing Liberty, libertarianism which was a critique of libertarian ideas and laissez-faire capitalism and then in 2017 she published the Mondragon Report which is a chronicle that includes 22 accounts from previous participants in the seminars um, and how they've been able to apply what they learned upon uh, returning home. She's also written for numerous other Um, publications including Yes Magazine and Shift Magazine and uh, she also has chaired many issue-based political organizations and educational forums um, including back in the 1990s was uh, part of, in Marin County, part of uh, Jerry Brown's presidential campaign a delegate at the uh, Democratic National Convention that year and uh, also worked locally on Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 and uh, excited to be gearing up for his campaign um, beginning this year. And uh, interestingly, um, her previous career was as a musician, harpist, composer, recording artist, and uh, her albums were charted in in top 10 billboards, classical, crossover, new age categories. And so if you'd like to uh, find out more about this fascinating woman, uh, you can visit her website at www.georgiakelly.com So as you uh, listeners may realize now why I brought uh, Georgia on the show and uh, the incredible, uh, you know, uh, career that she's had really uh, looking at, at on the ground ways to to implement change, both, both political and economic. And uh, Georgia, I would love to hear from you. Uh, what what do you find most exciting about the work that you do?
2: Uh, today well that's almost a hard question to answer because there's so many things that I really love doing and that inspire me so much but one of the things has been learning about and then uh, going nine different times to the Mondragon cooperatives in Spain that has shown me an economic alternative to the kinds of cutthroat capitalism that we see here and it's it's been an inspiration as to how economic relationships can evolve to be more empathic, compassionate, and equal among people. So I've learned a lot from that experience, and I think it's been one of the more inspiring um, experiences I've actually had in the last 10 years. And so going every year to lead that seminar has been uh, my lifeline in many ways. I say I get juiced up from that, seminar, and then I'm ready to spend the rest of the year working in the U.S., but it's really been something that's helped me stay on course, believing mm. what humanity can achieve.
1: Yeah, tell, tell us more exactly what's what's happening at Mondragon and, and why you find it such such an exciting uh, demonstration of, of what's possible.
2: Well, for people who don't know anything about it, and that's seems to be actually a lot of people, the Mondragon Cooperatives are the largest group of worker-owned businesses in the world. And they began in the mid-50s with one small little worker-owned businesses with five worker owners, and today it's over 100 businesses and close to or a little over 80,000 worker owners in the Basque region of Spain. And what they've created since 1955 is really astounding in many ways. Uh, They have a university system now, a banking system with branches all over Spain. They have a supermarket chain with branches all over Spain. Um, And a lot of smaller to large businesses. They make everything from elevators and bicycles to machine uh, auto parts. So they're very industrial on one level, but they also have the largest research and development complex in all of Europe. So they're always looking toward the future. But I think one of the most inspiring aspects of their cooperatives are the ethics and culture uh, that sustains it and that actually inspired it to begin in the first place. And that is a sense of... Um, compassion, I would say, understanding the the necessity for a certain level of equality in a society. So for instance, uh, a CEO of a major company will not be making more than six times the lowest paid worker in the company. So there's there's a um, direction and a, a commitment to all of the people that every bit of work on every level is respected and no one gets an outsized Salary. It's like they understand limitations in a way that's, I think, very hard for a lot of Americans to uh, grok. Is that limit? We live on a limited planet, and we have to understand limitations. And they do.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and, and when you described it to me in our previous conversation, uh, it, it was so fascinating how that cultural perception of, of money and, uh, was different than ours and, and how there it, it, it was uh, you know no deep poverty and no great excess of wealth. And tell me a little bit more about kind of that uh, e- equality that's found there.
2: Well, that's, that's been a very interesting aspect. I mean, the first time I went in 2008, uh, we all noticed that there really was no poverty in the region and there also were no homeless. And um, the freeways looked like they were paved yesterday. The maintenance of the area is pretty astounding as well. But they, it was clear to us that poverty had been eradicated. But what we didn't notice so much, because I think we were not geared to notice this, and I didn't really realize it until the third trip I took there, so then I started pointing it out to the groups that we brought, is that while there is no poverty, there's also at the other end of the spectrum no great wealth, and that's the part that I think we're not trained to notice because uh, we don't have a sense of limitation on great wealth in America, and there they do, and that's some, some of what I meant when I said they understand limitations and honor that idea. So you don't see all these big spreads of mansions and acreage with lots of you know, with people living on uh, 50 acres of land with a mansion. They don't live like that. And so there's a, but they live well. Everyone lives well. And there's certainly different levels of, of income among the people there. But you don't see the exaggerated wealth and you don't see the poverty. And, and that's, I think, an understanding of, we have limits on a finite planet. We want to respect all people and their work. Um, it's a very inclusive understanding. And these are the kinds of things that inspire me and why I keep leading trips there every, every year that I can. And we'll have another one this June.
1: Hmm. Yes, fantastic. And, and uh, if people are interested in going, are, are there still spaces?
2: Yes, there are, and I realized you gave my my personal website earlier for my music website, but the website for Praxis Peace Institute is www.praxispeace.org, and that's P-R-A-X-I-S-P-E-A-C-E dot org, and that there's information right on the home page that you can click onto to find out about this seminar.
1: Thank Fantastic! You. Great. So let, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, w- when I first met you at the Economics of Peace Conference, I um, was, was just so impressed by some of the the people who came together and, and some of the projects which really uh, came out of that, and uh, would love to hear your, uh, yeah, just your summary of, of that conference, and then also tell us more about what's uh, what's coming up with this, this December conference
2: okay yeah the, the one uh, 10 years ago which is hard to believe it's that long ago it's almost 10 years ago it was in 2009 in the fall the economics of peace was looking at the underlying economic realities around how do we get to peace uh, with well it's I guess where well, well, I want to say that is peace I think is a result of right livelihood and right living And economics and the economic base of how we live is so critical into how we either get to peace or not. So looking at what we tried to do at that conference is look at the underlying uh, structures and how the economic beliefs that we have in our society determine outcomes, whether it be more war for oil or uh, regime change in foreign countries, how our economic drivers are... um, informing where we're going basically and and since we don't like a lot of the places where our economic Indicators are showing we're headed. Uh, how do we change that? What, what is the way to change the economic reality in a systemic way? And so that's what that conference was looking at. How, how are we going to do this? It was a lot of inquiry and bringing together people with with really different ideas about how an ec- economy could be structured so a lot of good things came out of it. The Public Banking Institute came out of it, um, and some, of the, some groups were more, um, got more support from being at the conference. They were just at their beginning stages. So it, it was, I think, a really good place for people to meet, to network, and to form organizations that would continue work that was talked about at the conference. And this year, or the end of this year, early December, we're planning to do uh, an anniversary of that conference, 10 years later, which would be called the economics of climate justice. And that's still looking at economics, but it's looking at it now from the lens of the climate crisis we're in. And how are we going to address this in a a way that really makes a difference on the planet? Because we have 11 years. And if we don't do something drastic in this next decade, we're, I think, fairly doomed on the planet. So we we see the urgency of the issue, and we're trying to bring together people who can demonstrate solutions, and then, you know, part of it is getting together and talking about how are we going to do this, what are we going to commit to, so that we will have, after the conference, kind of an ongoing forum that will track what's happening from it. So there will be accountability from the conference.
1: Mm, Love it. It's, it's such a fascinating intersection there that you're speaking about um, where culture and climate and money intersect and, and how we can uh, you know, empower individuals and transform institutions and, and be able to, to navigate the, the scope and, and level of change uh, that's, that's necessary.
2: Well, that's why we've looked so much at culture, and we have a, a group that's meeting um, almost monthly, maybe every other month, on transitioning culture, what, what it would take to transition a culture. And we started that those meetings, which will culminate with the conference in December, uh, around a book that was written by one of our members. It's called The Patterning Instinct, uh, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning and it's by Jeremy Lentz. He's a member of Praxis, and the book is actually quite profound about how cultures influence each other and change, and we decided to start the meetings with his book, and um, we have quite a wonderful small group of members, but they're really quite astute, and another one of our members is leading the group um, this month. Uh, He wrote a book called Madness at the Gates of the City, The Myth of American Innocence. Uh, His name is Barry Spector, and we're going to have him lead the next Transitioning Culture Salon. Um, So we've had some really interesting meetings already that we hope will culminate by the conference so we can talk about what really needs to happen in the culture. If we're going to support an economic change, what does the culture have to understand? Because uh, we're we're kind of in a... um, we only see the water we swim in in our culture, and we need to see beyond that and well beyond it. And I think all of us on some level are on default mode in our culture, and it's trying to understand how we're caught up in that default mode where we don't, make, we don't formulate the right questions to actually get out of where we are. So part of the reason for doing the conferences is to get together together and before that, formulate some of the questions that need to be asked and addressed. Uh, I know this gets very philosophical, but I think I think we have to get philosophical to understand what we're up against uh, in order to make a significant and systemic change in the society.
1: An essential piece that's that's often looked by people who are either you know focused on environmental change or political change or you know with, without the cultural uh, layer of of what brings meaning to people's life and and what kind of conversations we're having and I'm wondering you know money is such a taboo topic and uh, mm-hmm. you've been someone who's who's willing to bring people together to talk about it, and just wanted to hear from your perspective the power and importance of people coming together to talk more honestly, authentically, and transparently about money.
2: Uh, I I think that's what we do at the conferences. However, I don't think we talk about it, and this would be an interesting thing to look at that you're bringing up. Uh, We don't really talk about it on a personal level so much, and probably we should do that this next time. Um, We've talked about it a lot in terms of the culture uh, and business, um, investing, but we haven't really talked about it individually and how people individually relate to money, how they relate to uh, how they use it or don't use it or have it or don't have it. I think that part of it has kind of been taboo in the society, as you, as you mentioned. So that right. might be a good track to put in.
1: I agree. I, I think it's it's essential for both to be happening simultaneously. Some people get, get too uh too consumed in the in the personal story and, and forget about the system cultural change and and vice versa. So I think integrating exactly. the two would be super powerful. Ultimately, you know, money does reflect our values and I'm curious how you feel um this has influenced your work and, well, it's and a little bit more about praxis peace we haven't talked much about that and and that kind of investment approach
2: all right let me t- yeah because i put i actually put a lot of my own money into it to make it work which is on some level crazy um, but i really believe in the work so much that um i continue to plug away at it no matter what um and part of it is it's been my own personal quest to do this organization. Um, it Back in 19 – well, actually, maybe it started around the time of the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, when I was um, leaving the U.S. to spend six months in what was then called Yugoslavia, it, you know, dissolved. But at that point, it was Yugoslavia, and I was going over there to to play harp, in a festival, a composer's festival, and I planned to stay for for six months and just really experience the culture. And uh, two months after I arrived, the war broke out there and the country disintegrated. <laughs> the civil war just, you know, broke out. Slovenia and Croatia from Yugoslavia while I was there, and I thought. I really had expected that when I left the U.S., I was leaving war behind because all the Gulf War fanaticism was going on, and that two months later, I'm in another war in another country, only I'm much closer to the front lines. And my question at that point was, why do we keep recycling these wars? What is it in our in our psyches, in our cultures, that we don't learn the lessons of history and we keep repeating these things? So, Uh, That started the first conference in 2000, was to really look at why we don't learn the lessons of history. So I would say Praxis began as an inquiry process, and it continues that process. We will always be asking questions. Even while we get some solutions, the questions never stop so that the growth continues in our own um, evolution. Or uh, like I did when I was there, uh, it's now Croatia where I was, um, it, it brought it home to me, I guess, in a very visceral way, especially since I was hoping to stay there for two years, but couldn't because of the uh, the war just made it really impossible. So that, that was the impetus, and it took a while to get Praxis off the ground, but once it was off the ground, uh, we continued with the conferences, and every conference has had both an inquiry element to it and uh, a solutions element. So... The one coming up in December, um, the Economics of Climate Justice will have both of those tracks as well.
1: Mm. Love it. Uh, that's great. What, what else could people expect from, from the conference in December?
2: Um, well, we're actually kind of putting that together now. So we don't have all the ideas out there, but we have certainly some of them. And, uh, you know, some of the questions that we have around this conference at, at the early stage, like right now, are what do we want the future to look like? How will we successfully address climate change, social justice, and economic fairness? And what values do we need to strengthen in our culture in order to make those things happen? So those are some of the questions. That's the inquiry part. Um, you know, really a deep look at what has to happen systemically if we're going to address climate, both in terms of climate justice and in terms of the economic things that have to change in the culture, where money is invested, where candidates are getting their money from, uh, and how we shift from fossil fuels to completely renewable energy sources. And, of course, this is possible. We even have the technology today to do it, Very quickly, but because of the economic interests, it isn't happening. And because of the economic interests, it's being delayed and delayed and delayed. One of the speakers we had at our 2014 conference, and then he spoke in Sonoma last January, um, Mark Jacobson, who's a climate scientist at Stanford University, has worked on a Uh, Actually, it's a whole system called the Solutions Project, which shows how every state in the union and every country on the planet could be operating at 100% renewable energy sources. And uh, it it shows how much wind, how much solar, how much uh, hydroelectric, the different formations that they would need or formulas that they would need to make it work in their particular areas. And then he also shows Uh, the jobs that would be lost without fossil fuel, but the jobs that would be gained and created by the new renewable energy projects. And it's really, there's a website on the solutions projects where people can see all this. But what this shows, and I'll definitely invite him back to speak at the conference this year, uh, is that it's all possible. And it's possible in a really short amount of time if we could change how the economic interests are playing out.
1: Yes. And it's so exciting to see this Green New Deal uh, finally getting yes. some, some traction in, in the political situation and, and people saying, look, this is a realistic plan and, and some approaches that could dramatically shift uh, the balance of power, our ability to cr- create regenerative um, uh, ecosystems. Um, so it's very exciting. Uh, yeah, and
2: the, the uh, scientist I was just mentioning from Stanford was also um, an advisor of Bernie Sanders' environmental um, part of his campaign, the environmental part of his campaign in 2016, and is still in that capacity as far as I know now. So Bernie's getting his information from really good sources
1: Nice. Excellent. Um, yeah, when um we're gonna take a quick um break here just for a minute, uh, from a word from our sponsor and then when we come back we can talk a little bit more about the public banking institute, um, you know, your your experience also as as a woman leader in this field for for so long. Um, and so much more to, uh, to discuss with you. So we'll be back in
3: just a moment. Are you ready to enjoy greater financial freedom? Perhaps you're like Emily, a creative entrepreneur who wants to increase her income to provide for her family. Using the free video training found at DiscoverYourTrueWealth.com, she learned the secrets to accessing hidden resources and creating lasting wealth. Emily learned a persuasive negotiation technique to bring in more money with her top clients. She boosted her credit score and opened new financial doors while reducing expenses and she took specific steps to strengthen her existing relationships and create a safety net for her business. With the Discover Your True Wealth training, thousands of women have improved their bank balances and secured their family's future. With this free video course, you'll transform beliefs, behaviors, and skills with money. Take charge of your financial situation with the training found at wealthcom Welcome back. We are here
1: with Georgia Kelly, founder and executive director of the Praxis Peace Institute, uh, and and just so inspiring to hear uh, the the power of coming together in in conversation and uh, really sharing uh, what what we the best we have to offer to really transition the world in a positive direction. Um, I, as you know, I've been working with the Post-Growth Institute for uh, two years now, and we've been developing this offers and needs market event. And uh, it does just this, it brings people together in a short 90-minute process, face-to-face. People are sitting around small tables and, and sharing and exploring what their knowledge, skills, resources, and needs are. And I, I tell you, at the last one we did a couple of weeks ago, people were just um, so turned on in a way that they hadn't experienced before because they were able to really express you know um, their needs without holding back and and also share a variety of gifts with each other and what we see every time is there is so much incredible wealth uh, within our very own communities that often is un uh, invisible and so uh, I was curious your thoughts on on uh, this this process and and um, yeah why you think it's important.
2: Yeah, that's one of the reasons, I think, for doing the conferences. I know webinars have become very, very popular, um, you know, in recent times, and they're certainly practical in that people don't have to travel. But the power of getting people face-to-face, and especially for an extended period of time like the conference, which would be three full days, so people would be around for four days, and that bringing people together like that with nothing else that they have to do but be there not only gives them time to interact with people in workshops and uh, breakout groups and hear some really inspiring speakers, but there's also plenty of time to network over meals, between times, between things. Um, That's part of what I've always designed in the conferences, is free time so that people can meet up and feel like they're not missing something to do it. Um, But that in-person dynamic has... I think been part of the reason why new organizations get created, why people um, connect with other things that are already going on and get committed to doing things. The in-person relationships, I don't think anything can quite replace that, and uh, that, that's the dynamic and the excitement of a conference. It's kind of like a political campaign, too. When you're with the people who are working on something, there's an excitement, there's a brings out a commitment and more of a feeling of camaraderie I think it's important for all of us and I think it sustains us really well too spiritually and uh, psychologically
1: hmm yes yes I've totally experienced that too Uh, I'm I'm cu- curious Georgia what has it been like to be a woman uh pioneering in such a male dominated field for uh several decades here now um curious what what you'd like to share with with listeners many of whom are younger in their 30s and 40s and uh you know what? What qualities um, do you feel makes makes for an effective uh, feminine leader? And and what's your experience been like as a woman?
2: Well, that's kind of an interesting question um, because I think both fields that I was in, uh, males dominated quite a bit. Uh, certainly in the music industry when uh, I was signed with a company that had CBS distribution, and dealing with them was a really quite an interesting. Um, experience and dealing with the way men sometimes looked at women not maybe knowing about the business and so they could pull things the wool over your eyes so there, there were lots of challenging times like that and I have to admit on some level I never saw it as um, being a woman that I was disadvantaged so when I look back at it I could see oh they thought that. But I didn't feel that. And I think one of the reasons was, I was just telling somebody else about this yesterday, in fact, um, was that I, at, for high school, I was in a girls' school. And the, the impact of that, at least at the time when I was in high school, which was quite a while ago, but I won't say when, um, girls were very, I would say, submissive. And their role in society was one of being more submissive. And being in a girls' school, you weren't trained to be submissive. Even though it was never talked about openly, all the training was training you to be a leader. Um, And and how I see that is, you know, we weren't just secretaries of the class. We were the presidents. We weren't just the um, assistants to the editor of the paper or the yearbook we were the editors of it we were the producers of the events that took place and the musical or plays that we had we were always running girls were always running these things they weren't in a subservient or secondary position so i think when i went to one of the first reunions 30 years after we all experienced this same thing, which was we learned that we could be leaders by, by being leaders and by the girls in our classes always being in those positions. I think girls who haven't or women who haven't had that kind of experience, it's going to be more of a challenge because they, in a way you have to overcome what the society has given you is, is kind of a secondary role a lot of the time. I think we're finally pulling out of that. But when I see you know, and talk to some of the middle school girls today, um, they don't seem to understand their power. And that's kind of shocking to me. And I, you know, I see someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and I realize she's a great model for young girls today um, to, to show how a, a female, a young woman, can be so powerful. And if you saw her testimony, uh, with a, um, I think it was yesterday that was on television, um, with the hearings that were going on, I think it was just really exciting to see that her questions were so well thought out and uh, with follow-up that this is the kind of leader young women should be looking at.
1: Hmm. I agree. I did watch uh, that and, and was just so impressed, you know, that, that we can see women both, both with a heart and, and also with a strategic mind and, and ability to, um, you know, uh, take charge and, and direct the conversation and line of questioning when, when necessary. And, uh yeah. And, and I see, Georgia, what you've been doing is, is a feminine leadership, you know, developing relationships, uh, creating spaces for connection to happen, the way that you see the, the holistic picture and the, and the integrated parts and, and how they relate. And I think those are all really important qualities that, you know, both men and women can have that I consider more right. feminine qualities.
2: Well, it's interesting that, um, you know, some of the groups we have meeting, like we have a public bank group that's trying to get a public bank in the state of California, and in the city of Santa Rosa, which is um, the largest city north of San Francisco in California. And those two areas, we, we have groups that we're connected to also that are working on it, and we're meeting Sunday. Our group is meeting again on Sunday. So that group, and we have the Transitioning Culture group, and we have a book club, and it's it's odd that there are more men in all these groups than women. I'm not quite sure why that is, but, um, but that's just the way it's kind of happened. But um, I, and I think, you know, going back to what I was mentioning about Alexandria or AOC, as they call her, uh, which is a lot easier to say, I think for her generation, it's easier for, for a young woman to be powerful the way she is and still be very feminine. That was very difficult in previous generations. It's like for women to make it, they had to be tougher. And uh, then they get criticized for being tough. But that was the only way they could make it. And I think that's something that's changed in our society. You don't have to be tough outwardly like that to succeed. And I think uh, AOC is really showing that in a very profound way. Uh, I I think she's a really
1: good mentor Mm, for all of us, I agree. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit more about the Public Banking Institute and what, um, you know, for people who don't know what it is, if you could explain it and the significance of of why this is being also proposed as, as part of the Green New Deal is, is to use public banking, what that means and, and why it's important.
2: Well, I'm certainly not the best person to, to explain it because it's, um, you know, not my area of expertise. I think the person to learn the most from this would be uh, Ellen Brown, who's written a book called The Public Bank Solution. And it's an excellent book, and I will give just kind of an overview of what I understand of public banking. It's, it's not, it wouldn't be a bank that you put your deposits in. It's not that kind of a bank. It's a bank for a city or a state where they put their tax money in it. And for a state, instead of uh, sending money to Wall Street Street to invest in banks there, the money would stay here in our public bank in California. So then it gets invested in projects in California, whether it's road repairs, whether it's uh, new new rail lines across the state, if it's um, education, Money, that instead of being invested in Wall Street, where we really don't make any money on it, uh, it could be invested locally to improve our infrastructure, to give more jobs to people. It's a solution, and it could also create more renewable energy. Of course, connected to this, uh, my my view has been if we could get a public bank in California, why can't it just buy our uh, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, which is... I think in bankruptcy or close to it, and it would be a wonderful public utility instead of a private utility, which always puts profit before people. Um, Utilities should be people before profit. And a public bank, of course, could, I think, could actually buy one, uh, buy a utility like that, and make it a public utility. Um, So a public bank would really serve the people. It would serve the taxpayers. And um, that's that's the idea of it. The one, the only one that's really operational in the U.S. Um, is in North Dakota, and their public bank started in exactly 100 years ago, 1919, and it's been going ever since. And their state apparently did not go through the economic fallout that most everyone else experienced in 2008. So it's been a very successful project. And uh, I think now we have a lot more people, at least in California, who really want a public bank. And there's several groups meeting in the Bay Area and Los Angeles. And we're kind of connecting to a bunch of them and seeing how we can help make this happen. Part of it's writing letters to the editor, educating people about it, and um, telling people about Ellen's book so people can learn about how this would change the economy of a uh, state or city.
1: Mm. Yes, I I was shocked when I was researching uh, public banking how much money uh, say on on an infrastructure project like a bridge uh, is is put towards the interest on the loan and and exactly. how that goes directly to the the private banks and and so That's to right. stop siphoning that money off in, in these large, large numbers, and, and how much infrastructure uh, reinvestment that we do need in this country for roads and bridges and water systems. It's, it's really Oh, incredible.
2: we need so much infrastructure uh, improvements. I mean, it's, it, we've, we've come like a third-world country in a lot of ways. Our infrastructure is so dilapidated <laughs> that, uh, you know, when I go to Spain, it's like everything works much better. Than here, and it's it's kind of shocking, you know, to go to, to other countries and find that they this wasn't always the way it is now, but we have really lagged behind other countries.
1: Yes. Yes. And, and there's so much poverty um, that is, is uh, kind of hidden and, uh, and that people really are living on the edge uh, financially as we've seen greater wealth um, consolidation.
2: This is an interesting point, and it's something that Elizabeth Warren has been working on for many, many years, um, is, the, um, is usury, which is so prominent in our country. Interests that should be illegal. And um, she went after credit card companies. And there's two states where these credit card companies are allowed to get by with more than any other place in the country, and that is South Dakota and Delaware. And in those two states, you'll see that a lot of credit card companies, uh, banks are, are based in those states because they can get by with usurious rates and uh, over-the-limit fees and late fees. They can just pile them up. You know, one on top of the other, month after month, and make it impossible for people to pay it back, so that it may be that they would owe three thousand dollars, but in a couple of years, they would actually owe twelve thousand they could actually owe twelve thousand uh, and I saw Elizabeth Warren point this out at a um, hearing congressional hearing several years ago. Um, where she actually had the CEOs of these banks there and was talking to them about this and they're still getting by with it. So I think something, these kinds of things should become illegal in our country. And a lot of people don't even know that these things are happening and that these two particular States can get by with, with usurious uh, fees and interest rates. Payday loans should be eliminated and be illegal it's these kinds of things that I think we also have to work on that are that are just uh, punitive is the wrong word. They're, they should be illegal.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's predatory. It really is. It's you know, pre- exactly. preying on the poor. And then you have the um, legal system, which is you know in, enforcing and punishing when when people can't afford small fines. And it's it, it really it is. Uh,
2: prisons it's debtor's prisons without walls.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it, it is, and so we're trying so, to change all that. Yeah, let's let's imagine here in the last uh, few minutes. Uh, what is okay? So we have this next crucial decade or or so to to really uh, reinvent our our culture, our economy, uh, our, our political, uh, system, let, let's imagine that, that we are in this process successfully, maybe taking, you know, wisdom from the Mondragon, um, cooperative, maybe the green new deal has moved forward. Uh, tell us some what you imagine, uh, a, a positive future, uh, heading towards.
2: Well, I can see, uh, you know, I'm going to look at my own state because that's what I probably know the best in in California. I think we have a good chance of of establishing a public bank in California within the next few years, and that will make a huge difference. Um, And I think we will be ahead probably in the country of of renewable energy and, and putting a uh, a date when that has to happen, when a certain level, like 80%, by I would like to see it by 2025, but if we aim for a, a, a year like that, maybe we'll have it by 2030. But I think, you know, originally um, the scientists that I referred to earlier said we could have 100% by 2030. So the only thing stopping that is the political will and people not being educated about what we could actually accomplish. These things are not impossible, and I think our role is to help people see that it's not impossible to achieve these goals in a short amount of time. Um, things like that have happened before, and when I look at somewhere like Mondragon, where they uh, built that whole thing in a very short amount of time, it, it could be done. We have the technology. It's It's uh, up to all of us, I think, to be working on the political will and the culture and to educate other people and to educate ourselves um, what can actually take place in a short amount of time since we don't have a long period of time. We have 10 years. I think we ought to be looking at a timeline. What do we want to achieve by uh, 2020, by 2021? We we can't do it in five-year increments. We have to do it in... One-year increments because of the lack of time.
1: Yes, yes. The the focus and, and and the possibility for the phase shift to to happen more quickly than than we can imagine. Um, well, I've seen yeah.
2: things happen quickly, and. Um, uh, the city of Richmond in California, which had the highest uh, murder rate in the, in the state, um, they managed to, in an eight-year period, reduce their crime rate by 75%. That's eight years. That was under the, the wonderful mayor they had, Mayor McLaughlin, uh, Gail McLaughlin, who's written a book called Winning Richmond, How a Progressive Alliance Won City Hall, which, is, which shows how it can be done step by step. So I highly recommend that book. Um, and it shows how it was done in, in fewer than 10 years. So all of these things are possible in a short amount of time. It's what it takes, community organizing. It takes people getting together, making those commitments, working together, and um, strengthening alliances to work together. We
1: can do mm. it. Yes. 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 Tell me, I'm curious in your long and interesting, you know, um, career, if there if there was an aha moment where something in you uh, really changed, you know, your own paradigms and from some long held belief, uh, maybe about money to something entirely different. Is there a story that might be interesting uh, for us to hear about something that some aha moment that you had?
2: Well, I think I've had lots of aha moments in my life because I'm a searcher. You know, I'm always looking for answers. I'm always asking a lot of questions. I do a tremendous amount of reading and uh, discussing ideas with people. So I'm always getting aha moments fairly frequently. (laughs) But the big ones, I think, are things like Mondragon. Uh, are things like the city of Richmond, like I was just talking about. Places where dramatic things have happened in a short amount of time and you realize, aha, this is possible. And that's really inspiring to me. And, you know, reading things that uh, – reading about people who've done extraordinary things also is very inspiring to me and can be an aha moment. Um, I think going from music to running an organization, which is in many ways very different – but there's a similar process, and the similarity to me is the creative process. And when when you're being creative, if there's lots of aha's, you know, because you, you, lots of things happen that you're not expecting, and um, and yet you're opening up to the possibilities. So I think aha moments come out of being open and not being locked into a belief system or belief systems that prevent openness. Um, so that's, I would say, being open is a way of getting a lot of aha moments.
1: Oh, I love that, and and that really speaks to the culture, cultural shift uh, to to one of more curiosity and and wonder mm-hmm. and and possibility, instead of dogma and uh, dread and despair. <laughs>
2: dogma, dread, and despair—that's a an awful uh, three states. <laughs> If those were three fates, that would be doomsday, wouldn't
1: it? <laughs> right.
2: We, we don't want those.
1: That's the first time I ever said that. So I think it's. So Is it really?
2: that, But that's a great trio. I I want to use that.
1: Oh sure, go ahead. The three Ds. want them. Yeah,
2: we don't want that three D dimension.
1: And, and that's, again, why I love conversation and, and why I do this radio show. You never know what new things will come out when you connect with someone and, and have that chemistry of, of open conversations and exploration together without needing to prove yourself or know the answers. You know, it's like, let's just explore this.
2: Well, I think that's another part of our culture that we, we want to put a little bit of light on is the need to have answers is so uh, expected of us. And yet, it's really the need to, to uh, formulate questions that's really more important. And a lot of times, if people are asked a question, they feel like they have to fill that gap with an answer right now, even if it's wrong. And I think we, we need to spend more time enjoying the question, exploring the question, and, and enjoying that moment of not knowing because that's where things come out of. It's when we don't know that we really learn.
1: Hmm. Yes. Hmm. So if there's uh, one thing, if there's one thing you could uh, recommend that, that listeners uh, do today, if they were inspired by our conversation, uh, well, what would that be?
2: oh that's that's difficult because different people have different things that inspire them and um, but for me, I think getting active in one's community is really important, and continuing to educate oneself is really important. We have to continue to learn and um since we have brains that's what they're for and um and to work with other people toward the goals that we, we want to achieve. And I think being politically active is absolutely essential in our times. Absolutely essential. I think there's no way out of that one.
1: Yes. Yes. So true. What So what is uh, a key message that, that you would like to share with, messen- uh, with, with listeners here?
2: Maybe I'd go a little bit about... Praxis Peace Institute, which I started in 2000. It's actually 19 years ago this June. And it was to continue this kind of inquiry into how do we, how do we um, get to a place of peace in the world. And what, what that ended up evolving toward was peace can't really be uh, a goal in and of itself because peace is a result of right living. It's a result of a lot of things. But to make it a goal in and of itself is... Um, it's kind of abstract because we need a path to get to that. And the paths to that, which we've learned through the different conferences we've done are multifaceted. There's an economic path. There's a cultural path. um, There's an environmental path. There's different paths of how we get there. And it's how we operate on those paths that will determine where we end up. So it's, kind of the day-to-day living we do, the day-to-day interactions, how we interact with people. I think learning skills of communication and conflict resolution are really important. Um, We don't learn that in school, and we should learn how to communicate honestly and clearly, but we don't. So most people don't really know how to do that and are fearful to be really open and communicate openly about what's going on. Uh, so that's, I think, an important part of our own personal journey with, with systemic change and uh, and learning how to deal with conflict in a uh, constructive way, uh, certainly not avoiding it because conflict is part of human life, but, it, but to learn to be constructive, which is, requires a lot of maturity. And I think that's another thing that we have to learn in our culture. It's not really a very mature culture, um, So we have a lot to learn,
1: but I think Mm. we're making progress. Yes, me too and And living the questions and uh, discovering new new things about ourselves, new pathways for humanity, uh, discovering new relationships and and alliances, and uh, just really appreciate what what you shared with us today about you know Mondragon being such a practical uh, example that stood the test of time now for decades uh, as as a viable Option for a flourishing economy, and uh, so Mm -hmm. great to highlight what's possible, right?
2: Right. That's that's the thing, and that's what one of the reasons why we continue to go to Mondragon is this is is a beacon of possibility. It shows what has happened, how practical it is, and uh, that it's not pie in the sky. It's not some fluffy utopia. It's practical. It's happening. It's working. And when people see that, it gives them a whole other. Uh, it's an experience that changes one's life in a way. I always call the seminars life-changing because you can't come back with the same uh, ideas you had when you when you went. It changes your perception,
1: mm, which yes. is wonderful. Yes. Wow. Well, thank you so much for uh, changing our perceptions here today uh, in this conversation. And do encourage people to, if you're interested in anything Georgia shared or joining their trip to Mondragon in June, you can find that at praxispeace.org, P-R-A-X-I-S, peace. Dot org, And uh, yes, thank you so much for speaking to this intersection of culture and money and climate and, uh, and, and how we can really call forth the best in humanity to create a flourishing world together. So thank you for living these questions and for articulating uh, some of the possibilities for us here today.
0: for listening. If you like what you heard, the biggest compliment you can give us is to subscribe to the show and rate and review our podcast at iTunes. Be sure to visit www.moneymorphosis.com. That's money-m-o-r-p-h-o-s-i-s.com to join the growing community of empowered women who are dedicated to creating the true wealth they deserve.